Well, good morning. Thankful to be here this morning, particularly thankful for the words of the songs and the reminder of Christ's love for us. So, you know, it's easy, and I grew up, you know, coming to church. I'm thankful for that, and thankful for just the Lord's provision of parents who loved Him and who take us to church. But when you come and you sit under teaching, whether it be in a Sunday school class, whether it be a sermon, there's times where it's easy to for. I don't know if forget's the right word. I'll put in from my perspective is this has been a hard week. And I have to rely upon the Lord just as much as any of you here. Things don't get easier just because I spend extra time in Scripture. Thankful for the Lord's provision, for His grace. But when it's particularly hard, there's a particular joy in coming to church and joining with the saints and being together in fellowship. It's one of the great salves for discouragement in this world that the Lord's provided through His people. So it's a joy to be here this morning singing together. Well, you can open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1 as we conclude what has been a, really since the beginning of the year, so this is our seventh week, in looking at the pattern for the leaders of the church, the church and her leaders. What is it that God expects? What does He require of those who would lead and care for the church. If you ask most persons to name their favorite teacher growing up, a name will usually spring to mind. Some teacher, maybe in elementary school or high school, maybe even in college, who was instrumental, who was foundational, who has left an indelible imprint and mark upon your life differentiated them from all other teachers. And while it's sometimes tied to information taught, more often than not, it's tied to the character of that person, how they helped, how they encouraged, how they were patient, maybe how they made learning fun. We've spent six weeks talking about the character and the quality of a leader or shepherd of the church And so far, we've made only passing reference to the ability to teach when we were in 1 Timothy in chapter 3, verse 2. And yet, when you think of leaders or pastors of the church, what likely comes to mind first is teaching or preaching. And yet, as we've seen, the overwhelming emphasis when identifying and choosing the leaders and the shepherds of God's church is upon their character and upon their life. Great care and concern should be given toward the evaluation of future and even current leadership in the church based upon character. That must be the foundation. That must be the starting point. But going back to your favorite teacher, well, they may be remembered for their character, for their kindness, for their gentleness, for their patience. If they had not also taught you, they would have utterly failed in what was their most important responsibility. Similarly, there is a calling, or we might even say a commission for the leader of the church. It is not to the exclusion of any one of these characteristics, all of them are to be in operation, but it is nonetheless critically important for the health and the well-being of the church. This commission, this calling, is to teach, to exhort, and to refute in sound doctrine. This morning, we'll turn our attention to this final and important requirement for a leader or elder or pastor, all the same office, of the church. 
Pray with me as we turn our attention this morning to God's Word. Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We thank you for uh, the ways that you have so worked and so ordered our lives to bring us to this place this morning where we are opening up your Word, where we are studying the text together, where we are singing expositions of your Word. Father, as we were reminded through our reading this morning, your word is precious. It is more valuable than gold. It is sweeter also than the drippings of the honeycomb. By them we are warned. By them we are taught. By them we are instructed. By them we are protected. Father, will we be faithful to put them into practice that we would keep our feet from sin? Forgive us this morning where we have sinned perhaps unknowingly. Bring to mind those areas that require confession and repentance. Father, keep us back from presumptuous sin that we read about, from willful sin. Help us to feel the weight of it, the ugliness of it, to be reminded of your death on the cross. Lord, as we turn our attention this morning to this final requirement and important characteristic of a leader of your church, would we be faithful to Expect this to hold our leaders accountable to this. In your name, amen. Well, as we conclude looking at this list of qualifications, we've been looking in verses 5 through 9 of Titus 1. So we've rounded off these, what some of them have been almost machine gun-like fire of these character qualities and expectations of a leader. We come to verse 9. And there in verse 9, we notice that it concludes with a requirement that an elder, a shepherd, a leader of the church, hold fast that faithful word, which, depending upon your translation, says in accordance with the teaching, or in accord with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. What we notice here in this text is a move from the character of a shepherd to the commission of a shepherd. We spent the past several weeks looking at the marks and what marks a man as a shepherd or a leader of the church. And this morning, what we want to do is say, what then is this type of man, the man who displays these qualities, these characteristics, what is he called to do? With what has he been commissioned? Turn with me to John 21. I think the answer is summarized here where Jesus reaffirms Peter's ministry calling after his famous denial prior to the crucifixion. There in John 21, Jesus, after the ascension, or after his resurrection, excuse me, prior to the ascension, is enjoying breakfast with his disciples there on the beach. And there down in verse 15, he turns the attention to Peter. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time to echo the three denials, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. The weight of it hit home. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. As Jared Wilson notes, this then serves as the great pastoral commission. And it centers not on building a large ministry, not on casting this large vision. The central pastoral commission centers on this mandate. Shepherds are to feed the sheep. We might summarize it saying, character qualifies the shepherd who then must teach and protect. Failure in any of these qualifications we've looked at over the past several weeks combined with a failure to repent will disqualify and thwart the teaching of the shepherd of the sheep. And that's why character is so critically important. Well, turning our attention back to verse 9 of Titus 1, we want to dig in a little deeper. What is it saying here? Well, it starts with holding fast the faithful word. That term hold fast doesn't need too much description, but it's helpful to maybe think about it in this context. It is the grabbing hold of something, of not letting go. It's clinging to God's word as you would a life preserver as you float in the middle of the ocean. You're not going to let go of that life preserver. It is what is going to keep you afloat. It's what's going to save your life, so you cling to it. But the object of clinging is equally important. If you're floating in the middle of the ocean, you don't grab onto a brick. And so what is it that we cling to? The faithful word. This word is faithful. That is, it is trustworthy, it is sound, it is worth holding onto. I used to enjoy rock climbing. I imagine that I still enjoy it, I just haven't done it for many years. But when... Climbing, it is important that you identify what holds are trustworthy. Where you place your feet, where you place your hands, where you place just two fingertips. Knowing that they are trustworthy and will not give way is critically important. You test them, you feel them, you watch others go before you. You want to know that what you're holding on to will actually keep you from falling. It won't crumble, it won't break away, that it is sound. The in accordance of the teaching, or as taught, depending upon your English translation, is reference to the Greek term kata. Now what is this kata pointing out? It's pointing out that this is not a new teaching, but a teaching that has already existed. It's according to the sound teaching. But where did it come from? What is composed of this teaching? The Apostle John, writing in a letter to a church, he writes in 2 John 9, saying, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the teaching of Christ, do not receive him into your house and do not even give him a greeting. 
John thinks it's important that we stick to the teaching of Christ. To elaborate further, if you've still got your spot in Titus, you can look up to Titus 1. How does Paul begin the letter to his disciple in Crete? Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, the knowledge of the truth, which is, in according, which is according to godliness, and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested, even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God. It is from long ago. It's been written down in words. And so Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1 saying, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is the faithful word. It's a word that's been handed down through the centuries, carefully added to through the superintending of the Spirit of God. This word finds its culmination in the New Testament through the teaching of Christ and His apostles. And make no mistake, as you think about John's words in 2 John, any teaching that does not make the Word of God, the explaining of God's Word central within the context of the church, fails utterly in this task. It's holding fast to something else, not to the faithful Word. This Word is to be continually taught and passed down through other faithful teachers. We see examples of this Word being taught and expounded and someone ever asks you, what does is, what is teaching and expounding the word look like? Go to Nehemiah 8.8. 8. Sometimes it even takes me a little bit to find my spot. Nehemiah 8.8, they gathered the people of Israel together. They read from the book, from the law of God. And then you have all of the priests standing around, mixed among the people, not standing aloof from the people, but among the people. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. It's simply to take God's word And to explain it in such a way that it stays true to what God intended. What did God mean? Not what did God mean? Not what did the speaker mean? Not what some theologian meant? Not what some famous speaker of the day meant, but what did God mean? Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 notes that the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There we see the faithful word entrusted to faithful men that will be handed down. And these faithful men are those who are to lead the church primarily, maybe not exclusively, but certainly primarily. The elders, 
the pastors, the shepherds of the church are to faithfully care for, protect the faithful word and to teach it and to explain it, to give sense of its meaning. But why? It's not just so that we learn. It's not just so that we get filled with information, although that's certainly where it starts. Notice here in Titus that there's two means by which this teaching is to be applied in ministering to the church. First is in that feeding. One teaches and tends to the sheep. But there's also that protection. So you have the feeding and you have the protection, or if you want an alliteration, you could do the feeding and the fending. But you see one here who teaches and tends to the sheep. And on the other side, he guards and protects. And so we'll look at those two ministries of the word in turn here. How are shepherds and leaders to fulfill the command given to Peter on the beach of the Sea of Galilee that morning? How are they to feed the sheep? Well, first, as we've observed the past several weeks, by setting that example of character that makes the sheep desire to follow them to pasture. The sheep need to get to the pasture to be fed. And it's that character that creates within them a desire to follow the shepherd. The shepherd doesn't do this by cajoling. He doesn't do it by berating them, by threatening them, by chasing them, but by leading through example. And it's there in the pasture that they are fed by the teaching of Christ and the apostles, handed down from faithful generation to faithful generation through the centuries. And I like the way Paul describes the teaching here, because it begins to get to what is the point of the teaching. The word translated, or perhaps translated as exhort, may also be translated as encourage. Perhaps your translation says comfort. It's the verbal form of a term that is often used of the Holy Spirit, who is described as the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, who comforts. Well, here it is parakaleo. A teacher should be adept at using this faithful word to feed, to encourage, to comfort, to nourish. And the wise teacher will be able to use it to help in growth, to bind up wounds, to warn from error, to strengthen the weak, to protect the naive. That's what the purpose of the teaching is to do. It's to build up the body of Christ. It's to create more teachers. Hebrews 4.12 describes this ministry of the Word by saying the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This trustworthy Word then is used And it's here described as healthy, trustworthy, free from error, like a builder who carefully chooses quality materials, free of defect, and building of his home. So the shepherd uses the word of God to build up the body of Christ, the unadulterated, pure, trustworthy word of God. And the purpose, at least one of the purposes of this teaching, is that building up of the body of Christ. If you've ever traveled to Rome or even to Greece and seen the ancient Roman Empire, you see their structures are still standing. 
They used a, this Roman concrete is what it's called. And for years, it was difficult to understand how it was that these edifices stood the test of time. My driveway doesn't even last 20 years out of concrete. What was it? What was so unique about this concrete that allowed for this building up? They were able to analyze it and the compositions and could get close, but they could never quite figure it out till one day someone realized, you know, we're using water from the lab here. You realize they were mixing this down by the sea. They threw seawater into the mix, and that was it. We learned and understood what the composition of this Roman concrete was. Not only that, those edifices that are there by the sea, the seawater continues to work within that concrete to make it stronger and stronger until it's one solid formation actually strengthens it over time as opposed to degrades it. Similarly, teachers in the church need to know what it is that builds up the body of Christ, how to fit together God's Word, how to apply it to the needs of people, to build it up as we build up the church brick by brick, as we encourage people, as we strengthen them, as we exhort them, as we encourage them, as we rebuke them. And in order for a teacher to accurately handle the word, there's an expectation of them. And that expectation is that they study regularly and deeply to know God's word, to understand it, to allow it to have effect on their life. And this teaching is not for the lazy or the faint of heart. It requires copious amounts of reading, of study, of careful attention to the language of the text. If at all possible, a study of the original languages, a sharpening of hermeneutical skills, that is, interpretational skills. With regard to study and reading, Chrysostom, you've heard me quote him before, one of the early church fathers said, do not welcome ineptness in an elder. One who will not study, one who is not dedicated to study, one who does not read, do not welcome him into that position. It's dangerous to the church. Notice, too, in this context that it is every elder who is required to teach. That does not mean all teach the same way or with the same level of knowledge or skill, but all must be able and capable at achieving the end goal, which is the feeding of the sheep. And as we'll look at in a moment, in protecting the sheep. And what does this teaching look like? Well, Probably what comes to most of our minds at first is preaching, and yes, that should certainly entail it. Teaching also happens during Sunday school classes, happens during Bible studies. It should be taking place through discipleship, whether it's one-on-one or much smaller groups. It takes place in counseling, it takes place in the home, it takes place with friends. This teaching is to be an outflow of the life of one who is studying the Word of God. And not only are they to encourage, to exhort, to build up the body, to help bring conviction so that there's a growing in sanctification and holiness, but as we see in verse 9, there's a flip side to it. They are to refute those who contradict. We notice here that the role of the shepherd is not just pastoring or pasturing, that is feeding them, but also protecting. 
an important part of shepherding involves protection. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts 20. There we see Paul reminding the Ephesian elders near the end of his ministry as he's on his way or making his way to Rome. He makes stop in the port city of Ephesus, calls together all of the Ephesian elders and the elders of the Ephesian churches, and he brings them together to exhort them, to encourage them, to commend them, and to warn them. And he says down in verse 27 of Acts 20, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, that is, the whole counsel of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And particularly scary, from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." And so in similar fashion, Paul says to Titus, this elder or shepherd of the church must reprove those who contradict, those who go against sound teaching. The term reprove has the connotation of bringing to light, of exposing error. In other words, it's taking the sound word, using the light of the gospel, and shining it on the error. And it takes great effort on the part of the leader. It means that the leader must study and be equipped, as we've already talked about, but they must also think carefully. And they need to pay particularly close attention to what their people are hearing and what may hurt them or lead them astray. Jerome, a little bit later church father, noted that lack of education in a leader of the church prevents him from doing good to anyone but himself. Even if the virtue, that is the character of his life, may build up Christ's church, he does, it, he does it, that is the church, an injury as great by failing to resist those who are trying to pull it down. And this is uniquely difficult in the 21st century with the proliferation of information through the internet, where new books used to be relatively scarce where you could pay attention to the occasional traveling teacher or philosopher or pamphlet that was circling through the town. It has become progressively more difficult to guard and protect, and yet that is exactly what Scripture calls the faithful church. I'm sorry, the faithful shepherd to do for the church. That's not calling the shepherds to go out and be hunters, not to go out hunting for every little heresy they can find and attack it, but there is a need to stay current and well-read, to be aware of what the church is seeing, what they're reading. I mean, it's so easy that, for all I know, you could be sitting there reading someone else's sermon on Titus 1 right now. It's that easy, that accessible. It requires the leader to be with the sheep so as to understand what is affecting their minds and influencing their thinking and their decisions. Referring to 
these two sides of teaching. John Calvin noted a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. We spent a great deal of time the past several weeks talking about the character that makes the sheep want to follow the pastor to the field, to follow the pastor to pasture, to be fed. As we look at the end of Titus 1 this morning, at least this section regarding church leaders, it becomes obvious that it is critically important to the health and the growth of the sheep that this teaching, this ministry of pasturing, of feeding, is critically important. But it's not an either or, it's character and it's teaching. The character is what enables a pastor to teach. In fact, in Hebrews 13, when it talks about the church thinking of its leaders, considering its leaders. It uses a word that in a lot of your English translations is translated obey, but it's not the normal word for obey. It's actually be convinced by. And it talks about being convinced of their character. And the character is then described at the beginning of Hebrews 13, where it walks through how they are to live, but it's because of their character that you then want to follow their teaching. That's why we spent so much time dealing with the character of a shepherd. Because that character can undermine all of the efforts that are made in teaching. And yet at the same time, teaching is of the utmost and most critical importance to the feeding of the sheep. They'll starve, they'll die if they're not fed. Now, it might seem that in a text like this, there's very little that applies to those who are not leaders or teachers in the church, but not quite. First off, the study of God's Word is something every person who loves the Lord should desire. In Psalm 1, we read, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and when in whatever he does, he prospers. And so there should be a desire of everyone who loves the Lord to study the law of the Lord, to know it, to delight in God's word. But it goes further than that. We are also each called to teach. It may not be in the same capacity as a leader of the church, but parents, you're to teach your children about the Lord. Grandparents, I'll throw you in there too. And we see this pattern established in Deuteronomy 6 where you read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Moses goes on to say, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your houses, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. 
going even beyond that, Peter reminds us that we must be ready to provide an answer of the hope of the gospel within us to teach and instruct whenever asked to explain the hope of Christ. 1 Peter 3.15, many of you know this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone, everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, with, yet with gentleness and reverence. R.C. Sproul wrote a book called Everyone is a Theologian. The everyone there is every believer. You see, the question is not whether or not you will teach. It's not a question of whether or not you will be a theologian. For every single believer, everyone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, everyone who has recognized their spiritual poverty, cried out to the Lord in forgiveness, repented of their sin, from that moment on, everyone becomes a theologian. The question is, how faithful of a teacher and theologian will you be? And how good of a theologian will you be? Remember that an elder and a leader of the church is not selected so that they can then begin to practice these characteristics and they can then go on to learn how to teach. An elder, a leader, a shepherd of the church is recognized as one who is already doing these things. And so the logic would carry us to reason, to conclude that that means there should be many persons in the church striving to teach, to exhort, to exercise the gift the Lord has given, that the Spirit who is working to gift, to enable the body to put into practice these things. And then it's the church's job to recognize such a person. But it's important to remember these things are not learned after they become a leader. If you put into place leaders who with the expectation or the hope that they'll grow into the position, that they'll grow into the maturity, that they'll grow into the gentleness, that they'll grow into the hospitality, that they'll grow into the godly living, that they'll grow into, you name it, that they'll become a teacher once they're made an elder, you put the church at great danger. And so as we conclude a study on the church and her leaders, it's important to put the attention right back on you, each of you sitting here. Because it is your job, your responsibility to make sure that the leaders who lead the church will measure up and do measure up to the standards and expectations. Again, we're not looking for perfect persons. We know no such person exists except for Jesus Christ. But we are looking for those who set an example, set an example in repentance who the overall mark of their life is that Teflon character that nothing sticks to. Not because they're perfect, but because they quickly repent. And so as you evaluate leaders, as you evaluate teachers in this church, please do not lower the standard. Do not make excuses but hold every leader of the church up to the standard that God calls for, for the protection, for the good of the body. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for just the reminder 
of the importance of teaching, of feeding the sheep. Thank you for the faithful men you have given through the ages. Faithful men who have led to the church. Faithful men and women who have functioned in so many different ministries from mothers and fathers to disciples to teachers in the home. Pray that we would be faithful to exercise the gifts that you've given. And that in that exercising the gifts, as we seek to walk by the Spirit, to live out and to put into practice the giftings of the Spirit, that you will continue to raise up leaders here at Canton Bible Church. And that the body would recognize them. And at the same time, while they love them, they would remind them that the expectation they have for them is the same expectation that you have for your leaders. That it is a sobering thing. That leaders and teachers incur, as James says, a stricter judgment. Father, we thank you and praise you this morning. Thank you for your love we have sung about, the love that led to the founding of the church, your bride. Thank you for this body and the way we get to express that love back to you this morning. In your name, amen.